Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I know it's been a while, but you know what can I say? Life's been been, been busy, ministry's been busy, but both has been amazing. And so what we have today is we have a book review and uh, something I've never done before, but every Saturday morning, I meet up with a couple guys and we do some sort of apologetics discussion. We just iron sharpens iron, kick some ideas around, talk about various questions, things like that. And today we're going to be doing a book review on a book that I'll let somebody else talk about and give an introduction. But for way of an introduction, we have a couple of friends of mine. We got Ken here on the top left, or it's my top left. I don't know what part of the screen he's on on your side, but Ken, I've met him uh, on a Tuesday morning Bible study group with Free Grace. And we started, I think it was what, Dr. Wilkin and, and was it GES and Grace Evangelical Society and going through a hundred Free Grace verses, if you will. And this guy's a wealth of knowledge. He's a Oh. seems to be a theological uh, warrior. He knows a lot of theology, especially from the free grace perspective. And then down here at the bottom, whose video camera just conveniently uh, stopped <laughs> working, is my brother from another mother, Russell, with one L in his name, the podcast host, the YouTube channel host of the Berean Dialogue. And if you're familiar with his YouTube channel or podcast channel, you know he's got like this this cool jazz feeling intro music going on his channel <laughs> and so uh ken and russ i'm glad that we're able to just take this topic it was my idea to try to make this into a video so i appreciate your willingness in that and i'm just glad we're able to do that so ken can you explain really elaborate more what are we doing what book are we doing who are we doing this on and and we're just gonna jump right in the uh the book where we that's at the crux of this is uh, Pastor Andy Stanley's book, Irresistible. It came out two or three years ago. I read it last year. Well, no, it came out two years ago. I read it last year. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking for something to discuss. Yeah. And uh, I read an article that just ripped the book apart. Mm -hmm. And I went back over the book and I said, realize that, you know, I don't agree with everything Andy Stanley, you know, he's not a theologian, he's a pastor. Mm -hmm. I didn't agree with everything he had to say, but I thought the vitriol and the criticism was way overboard. I went and looked at Bob Wilkins' criticism of it. Bob Wilkinson had it, Bob Wilkins had a criticism of it, but it didn't go near into the depth that mm -hmm. this author did. And so I sent that one to you to get your response to it. And that's why I thought we'd get together and discuss it. Andy Stanley's book has taken a lot of hits because of how he treats Old Testament scripture. And most people say that it's a, it's a heretical position that he takes, mm -hmm. that he sees the Old Testament as having inspired authors, but not inspired words. Mm -hmm. Now, the New Testament, he doesn't make that claim to. So he's basically, and I think from the perspective when I read it, uh, if you know anything about Stanley, he has a large mega church. Mm -hmm. And the issue he has is probably similar to what 
uh, Pastor Chris at Church of the Highland has, mm -hmm. and that is reaching out to the unchurched. And that's, their, that's basically what they go after. And so what he was trying to do was smooth over the Old Testament to make it acceptable to people that what he was talking to them. Because a lot of people, especially in the millennials, they will reject Christianity. A lot of them do simply because of the, what they saw as a God in the Old Testament and Jesus. They like Jesus. And so some of them would build walls against the saving message of the gospel because of the, well, Joshua going into the promised land, supposed to kill every creature. Mm -hmm. That's kind of hard for some people. It's hard. It was, it's difficult for me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I accept it because I know that the word of God is inspired. So I disagreed with Annie Stanley there. And so when I read that article, the same article that you and uh, Russ had both read, mm -hmm. The hate that I saw coming from that, and I wanted to do a little background to find out about the author of that piece. And so uh, I think that's probably important to us, but y'all you, you wanna make any comments on what you saw on it? So the article that we're talking about, I'm gonna have a link, link in the description, uh, is called, We Have No Divided God, a review of Irresistible by Andy Stanley. And now I don't have the link right now, but it says it was written October 15. I don't know if that was the year or, or the day by the author was Owen. I'm going to butcher this because everybody butchers my last name anyways, is uh, Owen Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. I'm like, not sure how that's pronounced either, but I think that's, that is his name for sure. So, uh, and so, yeah, when I read it, it was, it was interesting. Uh, first, I did a little research, just quick research, and then Russ, you know, whatever you got to say. But uh, I looked at Amazon, Thrift Books, Christian Book, Audible, and Goodreads. So five places one can actually purchase this book. And on Amazon, it received 4.6 stars. Thrift Book, it received 4.8. Christian book 4.1, Audible 4.8, and Goodreads 4.3. So it has like an average review uh, rating of like a 4.5, if you will, of uh, what people's thoughts are with the book. And you're talking about thousands and thousands of reviews. And so that's what the general consensus is of the book. Uh, Russ, you said you were able to re read some of it? Yeah, um, I think... I think uh, the main it, to get to the root of the problem um, to to disregard the Old Testament in evangelism um, is the I think that's the the root of the issue and everything else in the in the book perhaps and well, everything that's pointed out in this article at least um, all stems from that. Um, you know, the gospel, you know, he talks about we should only talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but the the Bible says, referring to the gospel, that, you know, he, his death, burial, and resurrection, that it's all according to the scripture. Mm -hmm. And so to discount, <laughs> to discount the Old Testament um, would be to discount part of what is 
well, for part of what the gospel is defined as, because it's not just his death, burial, and resurrection. His death, it's his death, burial, and resurrection according to something, and it's according to the scripture. And uh, so, his death, burial, and resurrection, all of it was foretold in the Old Testament. It's to me um, an unwise thing to do uh, is to separate the Old Testament from evangelism. Now. One thing I always try to look at when I'm reading articles is really what is the thesis statement of this? And anytime we're reading anything, we really want to get to the point. What is the point the author is trying to make? What is the thesis? And, and I completely agree with you, Russ, as far as what you're saying, as far as the Old Testament, we're going to be talking about that. And, and Ken, after this, I would love for you to elaborate on the background of the author, because l like I, I had mentioned before in our dialogue previously, is all I have to go by is this author's writing. And so I don't know if he's using Andy Stanley's words contextually. Honestly, if there's a bent or a slant or a bias, maybe he just has a really dislike, disdain for him. And, and like you said, is very vitriolic. But uh, I want to just point out really what I believe is his thesis statement for the entire book. And basically, he's arguing the fact that our youth, which which is a, it's not an epidemic, it's a pandemic. Our youth, once they go to college and go out and adult, uh, in startling numbers, more and more, uh, they're leaving the faith or they're deconstructing or whatever the case is. And so a lot of apologists, and a lot of preachers and theologians try to figure out what is the problem? What, what is the cause of this? And this is what I believe Andy Stanley's thesis, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is he says this, uh, Christians have shot themselves in the foot by leaning on the Old Testament in their engagement with unbelievers. This is why we lose the younger generations raised in our churches, because after being educated or not in local congregations, they go on to university, take classes from smart, unbelieving professors who poke holes in Old Testament ethics and theology and then abandon the faith. Now, this is from the author's perspective, so Ken, you might have to confirm this is accurate, but he says in Stanley's Reckoning, this abandonment is unnecessary and tragic. Instead, uh, we should effectively jettison the Old Testament from our witness. And it goes back to an apologetic question and the fact of it seems like there's a different God in the New Testament and a different God in the Old Testament. How as a Christian apologist answer that question? Because from a cursory perspective, it does seem like that, but I know we've had plenty of talks about it, but that's really what I believe is his thesis of the whole article. So, Ken, what do you know about the background of the author? Well, uh, let me say about jettison the Old Testament. Yeah. That's not exactly what he's saying. He's talking okay. about with the saving message of the gospel. And uh, he, he has issues with the Old Testament. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. And Pastor Chris uh, at Church of the Highland has the same issues. Okay. And so they focus on the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, can someone become a believer by disregarding the Old Testament? I don't think there's any question that they can be. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to know about Abraham. You don't have to know about Moses. You don't have to know about going into the promised land. You have to believe the saving message of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And if that draws people in, they believe, filled by the Holy Spirit, 
And then you can look back at the, if you want to at the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament, <laughs> but I was brought up with the Old Testament. Yeah. I was brought up under the law. You know, I mean, that the church I was in, I mean, we had strict, strict restrictions. Right. Uh, you know, nowadays, I'm not, I'm not sure that works with a lot of people, to tell you the truth. No. I'm just it's not. Now, I, I don't want to change the gospel. I don't think we have to. And I liked talking about the Old Testament, but I think from Stanley's standpoint, and a lot of the mega church pastors that are going after the unchurched, mm -hmm. this may be a direction for them to get people into the royal family, into the kingdom. And so I think that's what Stanley, he pushes, he pushes the envelope way too far. I agree with Bob Wilkin on that. He pushes it way too far. But the culture has changed. Now, the gospel hasn't changed, but our culture has certainly changed. Do and you to draw people to the gospel, I think we need, I mean, we, we leave it to the Holy Spirit to save people. It's not us. We have to present right. the gospel. But the person that receives the message of the gospel has to be, have a passive assured receptivity to the gospel in order for the Holy Spirit to do its work. Unless your name is Owen Strachan or whatever it is. He is a five-point hyper-Calvinist. Oh, that's good he to know. He teaches at Midwest Seminary. Mm -hmm. He was a higher in the hierarchy of the Southern Baptist Church, mm -hmm. and so in which he he resigned from. And he hates the mega churches. He despises them because he feels like, and we both know about Calvinists, that if God wants a believer. He'll have that believer, regardless. Right. And so Andy says that all people are savable. I think his method of going at it is wrong. Mm -hmm. But that I, I disagreed with the vitriol that came out of this article. And that's why I went back and looked at who he was and what his background was. No. He's a young man. He's younger than Andy Stanley. Hmm. What are your but, thoughts, Russ? Um, I think that from my so from my experience i can't speak in i'm not going to speak in generalities when it comes to evangelism and uh sharing the gospel so i'm going to speak from my own experience most people that i share the gospel with they are aware of the old testament they know they know its stories they know what mm -hmm. it's about um but if when i uh when i witness to somebody mm -hmm when the a discussion arises and they ask questions, it always goes back to the old Testament because you, you have to define what sin is and you have to define. Mm -hmm. So I'm offering a solution, right? The I'm offering them the solution, which is the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the solution. But in order to define the problem, you have to go back to the old Testament. No, I, I definitely keep completely agree with you there. Uh, when I was reading through this article, I made dozens and dozens of notes. And uh, there's a part where the author writes, uh, but Stanley not only does violence to the Old Testament, and violence is appropriate word for, again, maybe vitriolic, but uh, he also misses the punctuated nature of the New Covenant. What do I mean? That the New Covenant does not reject the Old Covenant's theology and ethics, but rather brings them to their full and cosmic conclusion. And he goes on and talks a little bit more about that and 
Ken, you're, you've actually read the book. So uh, if, if what Owen is saying here is correct, as far as the, what Andy Stanley is trying to do with the writing in the book, I do agree, you know, with Russ clearly that the Old Testament does give the foundational purposes of morality, you know, Genesis one through 11, you know, you get every major doctrine within Christianity is found in those first 11, 11 chapters. Uh, we, we get uh, sanctity of marriage, sanctity of life. We get uh, sin. We get redemption. We sanctification. We get all of these things. And so do you think Owen was accurate when he's talking about that uh, Andy Stanley really doesn't understand the Old Testament's ethics and the purpose of it and the New Covenant error? Or do you think he's just misleading there? Stanley's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. So he should have the he had theological the backing. backing. Okay. As I said, um, well, I'll, I'll give you my example. I was saved at age 10. Mm -hmm. I walked the aisle, believed in Christ for eternal life. Now, did I know about all the Old Testament stories in order to, to, to right. for Christ to save me, for the Holy Spirit to save me? No, I didn't. And that's Stanley's point. He, as I say, he pushes it way too far. When I'm sharing the gospel with people, uh, you know, I, I answer their question, but I present the saving message of the gospel. Yeah. And uh, I, I bring up the sin and people know they're sinners. And they, that's what the Holy Spirit does anyway, convicts them of their sin. Right. So, I mean, if they ask me about sin in the Old Testament, I certainly will tell them. Now, now, what would Andy Stanley tell them about the Old Testament? I wouldn't agree with that at all. Right. Not at all. Now, there's a part in here. It's under his paragraph, The Main Thrust of Irresistible. He says uh, a little more than halfway down in pages 296, 297. I'm assuming these are quotes. There's no quotation marks, but there is references to the page numbers That's on awesome. here that uh, he says, we shouldn't lean upon the Old Testament in any positive way in our evangelism and outreach. Instead, the resurrection of Christ is our chief apologetic. Now, I would agree that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our chief apologetic. I would agree with Andy, Andy there because I know he's been very controversial in the past saying we don't need the Bible and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But Paul says that if Christ hadn't risen, we are still in our sins. Not if the Bible is inerrant, we're still in our sins or whatever the case is. Now, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the preservation of Scripture. I believe in all that. But the core crux of Christian faith is, in fact, the resurrection. However, what I completely disagree is where he says we shouldn't lean on the Old Testament in any positive way in the evangelism and outreach. Well, that makes me think of the book of Acts and the Gospels to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. If, if you were to try to reach an Orthodox Jew with the New Testament, they're not going to listen to you they're not going to follow you because they don't believe in the new testament they only believe in the old testament and so i think this is really sort of picking and choosing and, and leaving out god's uh you know covenantal people and then there's at the end of that paragraph he says one more thing if we preach it and leave outmoded values and ethics and visions of god behind he says we'll see our churches full once more 
I don't want to see a full church. I want to see a zealous church. I want to see a church that has a backbone to stand on the things of God. And I think part of the problem with uh, the Christian church as a whole today is the fact that we have so many people in the church that aren't Christians that never trusted in the finished work of Christ filling a pew. And that's great. They're hearing these, these lessons, these moral teachings and stuff like that, but they're not really saved because they haven't trusted. I don't want a full church. I want a Christian church, you know? And I don't know if that's his main premise being the fact that he's reaching the unchurch is because he's wanting people and he doesn't want to make disciples. You know what I mean? So that was one of the big things I, I took issues with as far as so, this. What's that? So I, I just have a, a, just a thought, right? So my question that I'm thinking to myself right now is if he's wanting to bring, because it doesn't seem like he's really talking about reaching the unsaved. He's talking about, he says, uh, look at that last uh, sentence of the first paragraph under the main thrust of irresistible. It says, if we preach it and leave outmoded values and ethics uh, and visions of God behind, we'll see our churches full once more, and the new atheists will stop claiming evangelical youth. Mm -hmm. And so he's talking about these, these Christians, these young Christians going to university and being converted to atheism. Mm -hmm. And so to me, to, to ignore the Old Testament and just only preach the new testament and teach the new testament in church because that's where it's that's kind of seeming that he's there where he's going with it it is not how <laughs> you stop atheists from claiming evangelical youth you you equip the christian with a proper apologetics to be able to explain and think through these things not uh not just completely write off or ignore uh the old testament uh from behind the pulpit or teaching it to to the youth it to me it's just i don't know i don't think that's i don't think that's right i think he's seeing a problem i think he's seeing a, a seeming problem and i want to try to look at it from his perspective mm -hmm. he's seeing what's happening right he's seeing these these christians uh be brought into atheism but i think his conclusion is is wrong i think he's he recognizes a problem mm -hmm. But he, his conclusion is 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 not the right way to approach it, um, in my opinion. I think, Ross, you make a good point. I think he doesn't. I don't think that's the best way to do it. I, uh, I agree. But he does give the saving message of the gospel. He wrote a book, and uh, I've got it here. It's called How Good is Good Enough. It's a short book. Yep, it's a small book. We used that years ago for outreach. 2003, Andy Stanley. It's an excellent book, mm -hmm. and it, it talks about the saving message of the gospel. His dad is still Charles Stanley, so and he's still mm -hmm. he's still he's now in good very good terms with his dad. So he gives the saving message of the gospel, and I would say that uh, his discipleship is excellent. I listened to uh, last week. I just since we talked about it, I listened to a series that he did on discipleship uh -huh. where he spent one, almost one whole hour on James chapter two. And you would have thought he was free grace listening to it. <laughs> it was, uh, it amazed me because he said, you don't just believe you believe and do. If you're a disciple, you know, things like that stick with me. I, I think I wrote something down to see if I can find what he said, 
but uh, I don't agree with him. I don't agree with him. I don't agree with Pastor Chris at Church of the Highland. But what they're doing, there are people being saved in his church every week. Now, are they getting the correct discipleship by not learning about the Old Testament? No, they're not. Right. So maybe, maybe perhaps he's more of an evangelist. He should be more of an evangelist rather than a pastor. You know, he would be a great evangelist. But one of the things he does do is he gets the people in the church working, you know, working there. They do food kitchens. They work in the uh, prison system, sharing the gospel. Uh, I mean, what he's doing are boots on the ground. And I, I, I agree with both of you guys. I think the idea of, of turning your back to the Old Testament, especially considering that I guess we're both all three dispensationalists, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. if, if you don't think that uh, the book of Daniel was inspired scripture by God, then uh, there's something wrong with you. Right. And so uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I think there's a problem there. But to throw him under the church bus, as this author did of this article, I think it was uncalled for. But it actually reinforces the guy's position. Uh, most five-point Calvinists could care less about evangelism. Yeah, I mean, they want to bring in the sheep. They don't care. The sheep are going to be brought in whether they give the gospel or not. And so just dragging by, uh, reprobates through the door, as I'm sure he thinks, and letting the, half the church full of reprobates is a bad reflection on uh, on uh, Calvin. Yeah. I will say uh, there's one thing that I believe it's from the author's perspective. To, it's the third paragraph halfway through under main thrust of irresistible. And I think this is the author, Owen, speaking, uh, where he says, there is a real issue in the modern evangelical movement with training our youth. The issue is namely this. We don't train our youth and i actually i'm a word person and i i focus on words and what they mean and what idea they they uh conjure up in one's mind and when we think of training at least in my mind i get the idea of getting ready a boxing match getting ready to deploy you train for a particular mission you train for a particular event uh do you guys feel the same way as far as what idea train gives Mm-hmm. And yeah. the reason why I'm going down this road is because I don't know if train's the right word because train doesn't really give the why train gives the how and the what I think it's much better for us, all of us and anybody listening to this, that we don't focus on necessarily training our kids. We focus on discipling our kids. Training is event specific while discipleship is a lifestyle. Yeah. And discipleship is highly needed. And I believe this is one of the big reasons why we are losing youth going to college because they haven't been discipled or we don't have men, godly Christian men that are actually men and not sissies in the church that reveal that, hey, this is what a mighty man of valor looks like, whether it's Jonathan, whether it's Benaiah or whoever the case is, you know, godly men are men. And so I, I just saw that and I just like, again, maybe I'm just a word nerd, but I would rather not look at it as training. I would look at it as discipling our youth, our kids. 
because yeah, you could tell them everything to think you could train them on why evolution is wrong, why free grace is right and everything else under the sun. But the moment they're confronted with it, unless they've wrestled with it and they've come to you or I with their questions and we've discipled them, they're not going to have a good reply and they're going to have holes poked in their thoughts. So I don't know. Those were just some of my thoughts on one of the author's writings. Is Stanley, uh, is he a Calvinist? No. Okay. All right. Absolutely not. What would you classify him as? I don't know. Free grace friendly, I would guess. No. But, uh, he's certainly not free grace, but he's, yeah. I mean, he's like his dad. No. I think he is. He's uh, eternal of- security. Why, why is he not free grace? Uh, I think uh, probably repent in order to be, to make yourself savable. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I, that was probably part of it. I think what Pastor Ken says, he, he's probably more along the lines of like a conflicted Calvinist, yeah. where some of the stuff he says comes across, but I don't think it's necessarily what he means. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like Ken, you're saying, whenever you hear him give a gospel presentation or you read the book, uh, uh, How Good is Good Enough, yeah. it's really pretty free grace centered. Yeah. You know, it it's a good gospel presentation. And so he's just one of those anomalies as yeah. far as he probably doesn't want a label as far as um, free grace, Arminian, whatever. And he just teaches. But it's one of those well, things where you have an evangelist and a preacher that's not a great theologian that's trying to get into the theological waters. But yeah, that is he, he won't live forever. And yeah. uh that he needs to carry it along if that's what he's planning on doing. And you can't do it outside of, I mean, it's going to be difficult. It's like, um, he's the head of that church. If something happened to him, I don't know that the church would survive his church. They think so highly of him. Yeah. And that's a common thing with churches today is, is the life and the death of a church really revolves around a person, a man, you know, and it shouldn't be, but, I've read and seen a lot of churches have issues when, you know, the senior pastor, whether retires or take another pastor or whatever the case is, and they don't know how to deal with change. Like Mars Hill. Exactly. Mark Driscoll. Well, you need, you, you see what's going on with Mark Driscoll now yeah. again, same things, but where were you going, Russ? So I was just, I, uh, the reason I asked that is because I wanted to know exactly where he's coming from as mm-hmm. far as from an a evangelistic standpoint. Um, because what I'm seeing is it seems it seems like he's got his wires crossed a little bit. Yeah. Um, I feel like his I feel like um, if you're going to be focusing on evangelism, then the death, burial, and resurrection should be the main thrust. It should be the main your main point. It's the main thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But he's he's talking about letting making it the main the main point um, even among uh, Christians who are already saved. And, and so I would agree with that to an extent, I, I think for like people who are just like newly uh, converted, I think that you should really get them rooted and grounded in, in grace and, and things like that and really drive like things about salvation home. Like, uh, so anything about soteriology, um, the main uh, points of, of that, like you know, his death, burial, resurrection, and really just talk about eternal security, um, by grace through faith, things like that. But, you know, as far as a person, they, they can't just stay 
in in that in that state forever because then you'll have you'll you'll just have a, a church as these people age they're going to age and grow physically but they're not going to grow in any other in in, in any other regard so yeah. i feel like i, I don't know i i I think he needs to flesh this out a little bit more in his own heart and mind and really maybe seek some, uh, some wise counsel on this. And, uh, and it would be my prayer that he would be open and receptive, um, to, uh, to really thinking this through a little bit more. I think, uh, I agree with you on that, Russ. Um, I think he de does need to think it out a little bit more as far as discipleship goes. Um, uh, his discipleship program is good. Uh, I, I, as far as putting people in front of other people and serving and looking out for the end of, uh, the folks that are um, the unbelievers, it's also folks that are struggling, the hunger, the, the prisons. And uh, I think he does a pretty good job there. But not having that basis of truth in the Old Testament, I think, can create some problems as these people these people age or these uh, Christians get older and, and start getting out into the world. I think you're right about that. There is one thing that it looks like he's quoting Andy Stanley's book. He has some quotations, some words and quotations, but then the sentence is referenced to a page number, but it's under the section removing the old Testament from Christian apologetics. It's the second paragraph where there's a couple of things that's mentioned here that I'd like to talk about is first, he says the old covenant God reserved his love for his covenant people, unlike the new covenant God. So here again, it goes back to the apologetic question. Why is the old Testament God totally different from the new Testament uh, Jesus, if you will. And it looks like this is, I could be wrong, a reference to page number 251, or at least the second page, second sentences, which I'll talk about here in a minute. But do you see any issues with the statement that the old covenant God reserved his love for his covenant people? Like, did is there anything in the Old Testament that shows that God loves non-Israelites, non-Jewish people? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No I, I doubt. Mean, there's plenty, plenty of that stuff too, because, it, and even if we look at that statement, we got to think pre-Israel. Okay, so we're always looking at and thinking of Israel in the Old Testament, but what about the people pre-Israel? Now we could look at Abraham being, you know, the first covenanted person, if you will. Uh, but then again, you go back to Adam. You know, God has always had a love for people, not only of Israel but pre-Israel, and even the foreigners that wanted to assimilate into the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And then we get the people like Ishmael. The Jewish people came from Abraham, Isaac, and mm -hmm. Jacob, not Abraham, Ishmael, and the Arabs. And yet we see the love of God extended to Ishmael and Hagar uh, when Abraham uh, had sent him out. And then you get Rahab, you get the city of Nineveh, you even get Nebuchadnezzar, which I believe probably is saved you know and mm -hmm. and there's a lot cyrus to say about too. that you know and cyrus as well and so but there's another part right after that he says the old testament god got so angry that he drowned the egyptians now ken is that something that andy actually says or is that something the authors in 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 
uh, putting into his work in his mouth. I'll have to, I, I don't remember that, but it's been a couple of years since I read the book. I'll have to look back through it. I hope he didn't quote misquote him on that. And I, I just can't see Andy saying that even on the last paragraph, last sentence there, he says, unlike the jealous and angry old Testament God and his wrathful people, new covenant folks don't get angry at lost things. On one hand of that sentence, on on the left side, he's talking about the Old Testament God. And then on the right hand of the sentence, he's talking about New Covenant folks. So he's talking about God in the Old Testament and people in the New Testament. It's not analogous, you know, so I don't know if the author is putting words into Andy Stanley's mouth. I would hope so in this regard, because to say that God got so angry that he drowned the Egyptians is really making God to have sinful human characteristics and traits, which we know that isn't the case. There was a purpose in raising up the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. There was a purpose in the 10 plagues and all the different Egyptian false gods. There was a purpose in all of that. Well, it wasn't a temper tantrum. What's the rest? I think, I think part of sharing the gospel too, at least the motive, it may not always be expressed in our words, but at least the motive is you're, you're trying to help people uh, flee the, the wrath to come. You know, it's the wrath of God at judgment day. We need to, we need to understand mm-hmm. that God, this Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, eight, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus is God. He's, he hasn't changed. Um, now, there is a coming wrath of God mm-hmm. um, that's on the horizon. And part of giving and sharing the gospel is to help people escape the wrath of God. Yeah. You know, and, and so I, I don't think that God, God has changed. And, you know, as far as his wrathful people or whatever he's saying there, I don't know if that's what he said or not, but, a lot of times it was God commanding the Israelites what to do specifically, you know, go in here and this is what I want you to do, mm-hmm. you know, and it, I don't know if it necessarily expresses their motive behind it. Um, who knows what these people's hearts were? It doesn't tell us, you know, it just kind of narrates what God commanded the Israelites to do. And then they went and did it. Um, as far as God, you know, judging um sin I, I you can see both you can see the love of god mm-hmm. and the wrath of god throughout the entire in, entirety of scripture even like in the garden of eden when adam and eve had sinned you know the wages of sin is death and god told them what was going to happen and everything else but yet he clothed them and you know what i mean and yeah. it to, and then prophesied of his son that was going to come. And, and so God, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know if this, a lot of these are in quotations. Like I see a lot of quotation marks and stuff uh-huh. and a lot of page numbers. And uh, so I don't know if this exactly is how he, how he thinks or feels. Cause it, it would seem to me, I don't know the guy and I never read the book, but it would seem to me that he would have a little bit more understanding about this, especially if you went to Dallas Theological Seminary, he it, it would seem to me like he would know better. Yeah, I I'm totally with you. It's it's one of the things I know I've talked about this before. Is you brought up the fact that there's plenty of love seen in the Old Testament through different actions, events, and people. It's similar to the question of uh, 
if miracles were so common in the Old Testament, why don't we see miracles as prevalent today? And I would argue in that question, miracles were not common in the Old Testament. You know, that's one of the sheer definitions of a miracle, but also the fact of when you're comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, I believe there's different, <coughs> there's different purposes for the Old Testament and there's a different purpose yeah. of the New Testament. And when you look at the time frame that it spans, the New Testament covers what, maybe about 70 years or so, 6 BC, then maybe 70 years later, we'll just roughly approximate it. So you got one, maybe two generations, whereas the Old Testament spans probably a little more than uh, close to 3000 years, you know, 2,500 years. And so you have 37 books written over a 3,700 or a 2,500 year period. And then you have 23 books written in a 70 year period. And so the events that God chooses to capture in the Old Testament span three millennia, you know, and so obviously not everything is going to be captured. And so I think it's, it's disanalogous to compare the events in the old and the new sheerly based upon how the breadth of span of years they both, you know, talk about, but also the fact of there's plenty, like you said, Russ, there's plenty of love and grace in the Old Testament that people are unaware of, you know, or they're just overlooking with Nineveh and Rahab and all these others, Nebuchadnezzar, and we can go on and on and on, Adam and Eve, and, and so on and so forth. I just believe that the purpose of the Old Testament, giving the foundation of pretty much everything, and then showing the history of the nation of Israel, is a completely different purpose for the purpose of the New Testament in planning missions and discipling and growing the church. So I think it's, it's disanalogous to compare the two, uh, but those are just my long ranted thoughts. You well, know, I, you started that. I, you know, part, part of what I was, what I was getting at is the fact that uh, he, he's, if this article is accurate. Yeah. Okay. If it accurately, uh, represents what the book says. Um, based on that assumption, he's ignoring the fact that he's still the same God, even in the New Testament. So if you were to get rid of the Old Testament and only read the New, well, what do you do about the wrath of God and revelation and everything else that's going to be poured <laughs> to be poured out on the world? Yeah. Um, it does. It just doesn't jive. You know, it doesn't make sense. I, um, I've got the book on uh, Kindle, so I did a word search on Egyptian, and only, it only comes up three times in his book, uh -huh. and all three of them had nothing to do with being drowned in the can, Red Sea. Can you do a word search on the phrase, got so angry? Got so angry, okay. G-O-T-S-O-A-N-G-R-Y, uh, because that's in quotation marks. And so I want to see if the author is being honest by quoting that phrase, and he says it's on page 251. Now, the Kindle version might be a different page number than the actual physical book, but because that's, in, that, that's interesting, you know? And so it seems like outside of the quotation marks on the article, the author is merely just rephrasing and restating, which is good when you're trying to do active listening to make sure you really understand what somebody, the messenger, is saying. But if the messenger is not there and you're rephrasing and restating, 
then whatever you're saying, the messenger isn't there to say, no, wait, that's not what I meant. People just read it and assume. But while you're looking that up, Russ, what do you think about the statement here where he says, and this is in quotes, our faith does not teeter on the brink of collapse based on the historicity, credibility, or the believability of the Old Testament. Our faith doesn't teeter on the brink of collapse. What do you think about that, Russ? Well, I don't think our faith teeters on anything other than our will. Okay. Like you, you, you have a measure of faith mm -hmm. and uh, faith is faith. <laughs> it's so like, I think that statement is kind of merging faith with logic and, uh, mm. you know, and assuming that one impacts the other, um, but it only impacts the other. If you don't really understand what, what faith is, faith is believing in something that, uh, you you haven't seen you know it's mm -hmm. it's uh you're taking the word of god at its word you're you're making a choice a willful decision to take the faith that god gave you mm -hmm. and place it in his word and in the record that is given you know now what, so what would you say as far as if say you're driving a car right and you got the owner's manual of the car and the car breaks down, whatever the case is, you look at the manual, the, the fix-it manual, and the manual says, you know, you do X, Y, and Z to fix your car. And you try it, doesn't work. You try it again, doesn't work, right? And so the inaccuracy of the manual, does that give you faith? Does that teeter your faith in the manufacturer or in the car, or does that sort well, of hinder it? I guess it would depend on whether or not I had faith in the, uh, the person who who made the article. So I think this all, it all goes back to our view of scripture. Mm -hmm. Do we, do we believe it's inerrant? Do we believe that it's perfect? And based on that, everything, cause all right. So if I believe that the manual was infallible mm -hmm. to begin with, yeah. then if I kept trying something and it didn't work, it wouldn't cause me to doubt the manual. It would cause me to doubt my ability to maybe comprehend what the manual is trying to say mm -hmm. or to execute what the manual is telling me. And I would sit and I would, I would chalk it up to, I'm not understanding something. There's something here that I'm not seeing or understanding properly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so um, when it comes to the Bible, I think that that's, you know, the correct way to view scripture. And that's one of the fundamentals um, is, is our view of scripture, you know, and if you look at in the new Testament, Jesus's view of scripture if you look at all the apostles, their view of scripture, what the New Testament claims about scripture, um, that's foundational uh, for any believer. And I, I don't think that a Christian can truly grow in their faith after they're saved unless they have a correct view of scripture. I agree with that. I found something here. Okay. What'd you find, Ken? It says here. He got so mad, he allowed his own temple to be torn down and then put everybody in time out. Read the prophets, God's spokesman. They were angry as Sheol. So righteous anger is a thing as long as we hover over the Old Testament anyway. So this is, I think this is where Stanley is talking about, you know, his, his belief that the Old Testament was inspired word of God, but it was inspired writers. What page, so think, number? what page uh, number is that? 
I'm in, uh, I didn't show on my candles. So oh, okay. Don't, don't worry about that. I was curious if it was roundabout. So there's no search uh, being pulled up for got so angry, which is what the author clearly quotes. Now I'm not the, I'm not so good at searching on this thing really. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're, you're fine. Move from paper to, uh, I mean, it would just be so telling though, that no matter if Andy Stanley is the type of person that is quite controversial. Well, he is that, you know, but also like you pointed out, it seems like he's doing quite a good work though, too, with ministries, you know? And so it's one of those where you just don't know about the guy and I want to give the guy a fair shake, which is what Russ you're trying to do, you know, and look at it from his perspective and not really knowing much about him. And so if the author is misquoting him and knowing a little bit about the background, you know, and being a hyper Calvinist. Uh, Wait a minute. Okay. Hold on a minute. Okay. What'd you got? Okay. This, this is his quote. It looks like this looks like it would be on, on my search. It looks like it would be on 251 in the regular book. Okay. Yeah. It says, well, in the old Testament, he got so angry, he drowned them all. That's what he said, right? Got so angry. Yep. He does quote that. Under the old covenant arrangement with Israel, he got so mad, he allowed his own temple to be torn down. Mm. That was it. That was on the previous page to what I just read. No. Okay. So that is in there. That is in there. I just, I think there'd be better phrase to be used as a parse as opposed to got so angry because that that really has the idea like in the mormon uh scriptures they talk about uh lucifer throwing a temper tantrum when his plan of redemption for mankind was rejected by heavenly father and so that's just a picture that it it brings up in my mind i want to go back to this statement as far as our faith doesn't teeter on the brink of collapse of the credibility, historicity, or the believability of the Old Testament. Uh, would it be safe to say that there's probably a play on words uh, here as far as the word faith, whereas one's faith, our eternal standing with Jesus Christ, does not rest on the infallibility of Scripture. It rests in the finished work of Christ. However, our faith in the ability or the trust would teeter on the brink of, you know, historical inaccuracies, things like that. You know what I mean? Like say, for instance, uh, we're told that Jesus Christ died uh, in Jerusalem, right? What if we know clear as day, some archeological, whatever, we know clear as day. No, he was actually crucified in Bethlehem. Scripture got it totally wrong. You know what I mean? Would that change our our faith in our eternal security? You know, I don't think so because we still are trusted uh, for the finished work of Christ and the ascension. Now, would it make our faith in reading the rest of Scripture and be like, "Hmm, is that accurate or this type type of deal?" Mm. Maybe that would shake it a little bit and make some question. I, I wonder if that's where mm. he's trying to go. Is well. trying to use faith in different ways. Or being vague. I, yeah, like I think so. Uh, you know, the the issue. Well, all right. So when you see Ken Ham or hear Ken Ham yeah. talk about science, 
right? He says, well, there's historical science and then there's observable science, yeah. you know, and I think it's the, I think this is the same thing here. Um, you know, seeing something, <laughs> seeing something, uh, is not faith-based. So like, uh, but historically, it, it not not just with science but just history in general mm-hmm. um if history like if somebody goes and they find you know a post hole in bethlehem and they're like oh this is proof or another historical document oh this is proof that jesus was you know crucified in bethlehem right <clears throat> i would sit there and argue this along the same lines that like ken ham does with against uh theistic evolution and evolution itself um, well, you weren't there and all you have there is a post hole and then some guy yeah. s- making a claim um, that does you weren't there to observe it. So therefore, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, like, I, I get that. Maybe, maybe that that analogy wasn't wasn't good, wasn't accurate. Uh, but all right, so say about this analogy. All right. So in the Old Testament, uh, we read on. Uh, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus tells the Jewish people, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple, flee to the mountains, right? Yep. Say during the seven-year tribulation period, we never once see anything remotely that resembles an abomination of desolation. And then, you, you know... I, I'm not going to be here, but you can tell me about it. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm trying to find something that's obser- observable. J- just to drive home the point... If mm-hmm. something in scripture was ever found to be inaccurate, would it make you look at scripture differently or question scripture? Now, I don't believe we will ever find anything that's wrong in scripture. Right. I won't put that out there, but I'm just trying to look at the statement that's being made and trying to somewhat justify where he's mm-hmm. going with it. Well, yeah, I think the I think that's the the foundational problem in his logic is that he went there. And to begin with, yeah. I think it, you know, I, I can't even go there uh, hypothetically because that, that hypothetical uh, situation is not even possible. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. It's, it's like, like, it's an impossibility. It's like the question of uh, that people ask, you know, if you found out that God doesn't exist, you know, you know, would you stop believing or whatever the case is? And, and as a Christian and somebody that spent so many years, you know, examining the claims of God and Jesus Christ, that would never happen, you know, because number one, you can never disprove the existence of anything. You can only give logical reasons why, you know, Muhammad didn't fly on a, on a winged horse to heaven or whatever the case is. But so yeah, I'm with you there. You know, I'm glad you brought up Ken, the author, because it's really shedding a lot more light this morning as far as my notes that I made. Because when he's talking about our faith doesn't bring teeter on the brink of collapse, yada, yada, yada. Then the author goes and restates in his own words what he thinks Andy Stanley is trying to say. And he says this, in other words, you and I waste our time in any way trying to show the Old Testament is God's word inerrant and totally true. We waste our time he he's putting the words in andy stanley's mouth you've probably seen a little more than andy stanley than i have ken have you ever come across the view of andy stanley where he's saying oh we're wasting our time trying to prove that god's word is true or do you think the author is being uh not gracious with that comment and i've never seen stanley say that so but i've had to be honest with you i've read two of his books mm-hmm. and watched a few videos and that's about it so i don't know very much about him you know and, and i've seen when we we're in south dakota we did a video series on 
on one of his, I think it was big church, maybe I forget what it is, but uh, he was talking about the historical evidence of the New Testament, you know, and the Gospels. And so I know he does spend time defending yeah. uh, the Word of God and the historical accuracy. So it just seems like the author here isn't being entirely honest. And I think his bias is showing. Well, I think his bias is showing. Now, I, I know Stanley has issues. There's no doubt with the old. Right. But I think that they've been taken, you know, to an extreme. Yeah. Um, Man, I think, I think Brock would be a good person to talk to about some of this yeah. as far as, because just because of his, uh, his testimony on how he was saved. So like, evidential apologetics like ev you know that's really what convinced him you know <laughs> of it i don't i don't have that type of conversion experience so i can't speak from that perspective so i think uh as far as whether or not uh evidence and being able to prove the historicity of the old testament that's not really one of my strong points mm -hmm. even though even though i can do it I, when I do it, I feel like I'm wasting my time because that's not, that wasn't my experience. I, as far back as I can remember, I've always just accepted the word of God for what it says, no matter what, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't need, I don't, even though I think it's cool, I don't need to find Noah's Ark to believe that that happened. Right. You know what I mean? I, and so on and so forth, but I do believe it probably does ser serve a purpose. Um, I haven't ever had the experience of witnessing to somebody in that, mm -hmm. uh, in that regard. And then them coming to Christ because I showed them a bunch of evidence, Right. but I like, like Brock, um, it does happen. So. Yeah. I think it really depends on, you know, the person, yeah. you know, who, who are we trying to reach? Who are we actually engaged in talking with? Because everybody comes with their own presuppositions and their own experience. And whether, and we've talked about this before, as far as the different barriers people have, whether it's an emotional barrier or an intellectual barrier, uh, if someone has an emotional response to why they don't believe, we don't want to give them a theological answer and vice versa. If they have a, a intellectual reason why they don't believe, we don't want to give them an emotional answer. And so we got to meet people where they are. And some people, they're, they're evidential folks and, and they have a hard time believing anything in scripture because they just don't frankly see the evidence. They've been reading too much of uh, Bart Ehrman's book about denying the historicity of Jesus and, mm -hmm. and the zeitgeist and how Jesus is a pagan copy of mythology. And so they haven't seen, you know, evidence to contradicts, you know, what they've been fed. And so, you know, as far as me, and there's a lot of different ways when you talk to apologists as far as what type of apologetics is there. And I really just lump them in three, whether you have presuppositional, which is what, you know, I would argue that you are, Russ, and, and you're very much presuppositional. You presuppose the Bible, the truth claims of scripture, and uh, you you hinge heavily on, on worldviews and the meaning of life and the questions. You have others that are evidential, which mm -hmm. are the fact of you know, Dr. Jason Lyle, and they look at the evidence and, you know, heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show with his handiwork. And then you have others that are experiential. And I think this is one of the big things with Brock is the fact that he had a, he had a big experience where, from what I remember correctly, he almost lost his life drowning. 
and there is an experience there. And all of us have an experience, our testimony. How did we get saved? Who was I before Christ? Who am I now uh, after Christ? And how did Christ change me? And, and so depending on who we're reaching, you know, and the type of baggage they're ca carrying and the type of position they're in, you know, I would argue, you know, that's a great, you know, either one of those methods would work. Mm -hmm. so, I remember him saying, I remember him saying, um, now this was years ago, so I've, <laughs> I've slept since then, you but slept. I remember, <laughs> yeah, I've slept since then. <laughs> um, but I remember him saying that, uh, one of the things that he couldn't, uh, really explain away in his mind was the fact that the disciples, you know, that they were willing to die, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And right. the, you yeah. know, and that, and the, how, how much of an impact that had on them. You know, <laughs> you know, along those same lines, Jesus told him that he would rise again on the third day. But how many were standing outside the Joseph of Arimathea's tomb waiting on him? Yeah. Not a one. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, it's not easy to believe. It's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And. uh yeah, it's amazing because even when the women went to the tomb on the third day, they were carrying. Uh, they were going to anoint the body. Right. They weren't. They weren't like, "Hey, let's go see." You know, Jesus rose. No, they were just going to an, anoint the body. You know, but it's easy to look back. You know, I probably would have been the same way. Matter of fact, I probably would have been a Thomas. You know, with the type of person I am. But you mean you would have more faith than the rest of them? <laughs> no. Uh. Uh. Huh. Uh, uh. <laughs> so look, this is this is my this is my kind of view on Thomas. Yeah, <laughs> I think Thomas had more faith than the rest of them. Okay, how so? Because like to hear because that. this is good. because <laughs> because Thomas didn't have to touch Jesus and see him eat in order to believe. The rest of them did. When they saw Jesus, that <laughs> wasn't enough. When they touched him, it still wasn't enough. Huh. And then the, it wasn't until Jesus ate mm -hmm. in front of them that they believed that he rose from the dead. Thomas, all he had to do was see Jesus. It never even says that Thomas touched Jesus. Jesus just told Thomas to touch him. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, it says that Thomas drops to his knees. Yeah. And so anyway. How about yeah, that? I mean, as possible, you know, Jesus never rebukes him for lack of faith, you know. He just says, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet still believe, you know, definitely. Uh, I wanted to go back to what you were saying before that, Russ. What were you just saying before that? Sorry. <laughs> I was about to hit on something you talked about. Oh. Um, it's probably wasn't even important. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Whatever. We, we were talking about, like, evidence and... I mentioned. Oh yeah, the yeah you were talking about the the would the apostles die for a lie? Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you know that's a that's a common argument, and you know it's a it's a good one because you know the apostles dying for a known lie because it's not something they're believing; it's something that they're uh, propagating. They're telling people, and they claim they physically saw this, and when their fear of crucifixion. Uh, they're still taking it to their grave. You know, they're not recanting. But I think one of the, another very strong argument as far as the apostles witness 
is really the fact of what motive would they have? Here you have a bunch of Jewish men, Jewish men. They're probably okay in the Jewish synagogue, whatever the case is. And by leaving Judaism to preach Christ, I, even after the resurrection, they've lost their family. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They've been chased out of their areas, death threats, being arrested. There's zero motivation for these Jewish people to break from Judaism and to go ahead and start this religion called Christianity had Christ not physically risen from the dead. You know, and that's a pretty strong, convincing argument, you know, in, in my book. So if he, if he hadn't risen, then we'd never hear about it. It's it, the cult would have ended. Yeah, exactly. And you see the case Gamaliel talks about that in Acts chapter five, where there's yes. a couple of different uprisings. And yeah. people said, if this is a, he said, if this is of God, stop. I don't want to fight against God, but if it's not, they're going to die off just like who is a Judas and, and someone else, uh, Thaddeus or something like that. So awesome. There is one thing that I do actually agree with uh, Andy Stanley. It's a quote. So I'm assuming it's a, it's a Andy Stanley thing where he says resurrection is the horse and the Bible is the cart. And, and I've heard him say similar things before. And, and I would actually agree with Andy Stanley on that because even before Marcion or however you say, say his name, the heretic that really prompted the initial creation of the canon uh, before 4th century AD, even before the Bible was written, the resurrection is what led to faith, you know? And so the Bible isn't necessarily what leads one to faith. It's the resurrection and the view and the belief and the trust in the resurrection. Although that being said, the Bible is God's inspired word and errant and fallible yes. and everything else. I will hold to that. But I do agree with Stanley when he keeps reinforcing the fact that the resurrection is the crux of it, not the Bible, you know, and that's somewhat controversial, but I do agree with him on that. Thoughts? Well, I agree with it also. And that's why I've mentioned in our comments that people are not the sum total of what we don't like about them. Mm. There's a lot of things I do not like about Andy Stanley, yeah. but there's a lot of things where he is doing uh, the Lord's work. Mm -hmm. Yes, it goes back to the old adage, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater type yeah. deal. Yeah. And so that's why you got to have, have discernment. You <laughs> got to be able to know. So people want, wonder, why do you spend so much time studying, you know, <laughs> reading, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Well, because you got to know what God's word says and then be able to tell, is somebody preaching and teaching God's word accurately or not? And so I think that's a big importance of it. So I'm, I'm probably going to get sick at my stomach after I make this statement. <laughs> let's, let's hear it i have found oh i don't even want to say it <laughs> i have found some positive comments by john macarthur oh, oh man it's coming from ken man it really did hurt him look he turned it he turned red man that's <laughs> it really 
That you know, pressure. <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and email Grace to you and just let him know the ministry that Dr. Johnny <laughs> Mac has on your life. <laughs> I do like uh, most of his uh, exegesis of uh, Revelation. Johnny Mac's another one, you know, how he uh, handles the Jewish aspect, context, culture, his apologetics. Uh, I mean, he's spot on in a lot of areas, except the main key area in soteriology. But y'all got any final comments about any of this? Well, I had uh, when you were talking about the gospel with the cart and horse. um, I would have to think about that a little bit more, but my. Mm -hmm. My initial thoughts is that why does it have to be a cart and a horse um, at, at all to begin with? Uh, because if you look at any time the apostles uh, were, were witnessing, or, or how about this? Just, just go to a simple example. First Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. where you have the gospel laid out, there's a phrase that's repeated, and that's yeah. according to the scriptures. Right. According to the scriptures. Um, I think that to separate the death, burial, and resurrection from the power of the scriptures, from thus saith the Lord, uh, I don't think that's a uh, something that needs to happen. Doesn't need to be a cart and a horse. I think they, I think they go hand in hand. The gospel is the word of God. Mm-hmm. So when you when you telling somebody about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, where well, where did you where do you get that from? Well, we get it from the scripture. So I think that to separate the two, I don't think is necessary. Or I, I don't know if I would. I don't know. I don't think it's a cart and horse situation. I think the gospel is the word of God. I I understand where you're going with it. The only thing that I would probably add, and and I love your openness, man, and that's why I'm glad you're here. But uh, what makes the other uh, true? Like take C.S. Lewis' claim. Or it even goes back farther than Lewis. Watchman Nee says something similar, and a Scottish preacher said something similar as well in the 17th, 18th century. Is is Jesus a liar, lunatic, or Lord? Right. And if he is physically resurrected, then that proves everything that he said. And so I completely agree with you. You know that everything is according to Scripture, according to Scripture, right? But. Do we prove the resurrection by scripture or does the resurrection prove the scripture? You know what I mean? And I think it's very fine line there. And I'm with you that you can't really divorce. Right. Because they're both both eternal truths. They are. But even without the Bible, if the resurrection occurred, would the resurrection still be true? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's where I'm sort of going with it. And I can understand thing. Yeah, I think that's where I, I, I guess I, I don't know if I, maybe I'm not the type of person who does well with hypothetical scenarios. You're not because you're a presuppositional. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just look at okay, the reality is they're both true, and you can't separate the one from the other. That's the reality. And I look at what are the different ways that we can reach and engage somebody that has honest questions. You know. Uh, And so if I were to take somebody that has an evidential problem or an intellectual problem, and I try to hit them Uh, with a presuppositional reason, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And so I try to help navigate through that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's where I would say, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think that that would be, 
And then even I think you're better at that than for sure than me, because even if I were to try to do the evidential thing, right. Um, you know, I would point to like the, you know, the historical evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And then right. I would always have to, I know me, I know what I would do and I know what I do do. I would say, um, just like the Bible says, <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. I, was, I would repeat that over and over. And, and then I would, I would really, the person I would talk to, cause I, I've done this multiple times before. What I do is I, I'll go back and I was like, look, all that's good. Like all the evidence and everything that's yeah. great. I'm, I'm willing to give it to you. But at the end of the day, you have to make a choice. You have to make a, a, a decision yeah. and it's a faith-based decision, you know, cause no matter what evidence I give you, you can still play the skeptic and reject it. And, uh, and I don't have a time machine to take you back and give you the absolute evidence that it happened, you know? And so at the end of the day, it's still a faith-based decision. Do you believe what this book says about Jesus Christ or not? Yeah. You know? No, I get that. Jay Warner Wallace has an interesting testimony as far as how he came to saving faith and it's similar to a Lee Strobel account, just a little different, but, uh, but I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. Ken, final thoughts. Well, I, uh, I liked our uh, interaction here. This was good. I think it was real good. Sorry, Oscar missed it. It would have been a, it would have yeah. been a, but uh, I'll talk to him this week sometime. Probably. Yeah, we're going to have to get a hold of him and figure yeah. out what's what's going on. So yeah. hopefully everything's gonna, okay. Be praying for him. I'm going to buy a can. I'm, I'm glad you're huh? here, Russ. I hope you come back again. This was good. Well, yeah, I had a, I had a, a little rough patch there. Um, well, I say a little, it felt like an eternity, just a lot of discouragement, spiritual warfare going on. Um, and I'm, and I'm, uh, and I'm, I don't know. I, I feel good now. <laughs> so, so, uh, anyway, Ken, I'm going to buy you a, uh, John MacArthur study Bible. <laughs> ah, yes. I, I already have one. It's on my Kindle. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, I don't have any yellow mark. I mean, any highlighting marks in it except for <laughs> Revelation. Now, I think what he needs, he needs, he needs to really understand what is the gospel according to Jesus. And I think Johnny <laughs> Mac has a good book on that. He does. I, you know what I found in Barnes and Noble the other day? Um, a sixteen, a sixteen eleven. Did you really? <laughs> and you yeah, buy it? For, yeah, it is thirty bucks. I Can went you ahead understand and bought it? it. I mean, yeah, but but only because I've read the Bible you know, numerous times, because I already know what the word's supposed to be in most places, <laughs> you know, so I look at it, and I'm like, oh, that's yeah. supposed to be believeth, <laughs> even though it says bileu. <laughs> bileu. <laughs> Belial. <laughs> Everyone who Belial. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have it for, for my collection now, which I, I've always wanted one. There you uh, go. Now I got it, and, uh, <laughs> and now I read about uh, the gospel of I. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, good stuff. Well, I appreciate y'all for allowing me to record this for the channel. Uh, everybody checking in. Check out uh, the Berean Dialogues. Oh, with yeah. His upbeat, jazzy tone music. I'll have links in the description as far as his ministry. And then Ken here is getting ready to do some teaching. I know you got video teaching of you. Uh, from your church is yeah. is there a way we can link that maybe i uh, probably yeah we'll work something out <laughs> <laughs> well, well we'll see if we can link that down there but check the descriptions we're gonna have the link to this article and the link to the book as well so you can check it out uh conclusion of today at least my summation 
there's a lot of things that were kind of borderline heretical blasphemous, but also on the other side of that coin, the author doesn't seem to be very honest in what Andy Stanley is trying to declare. Yeah. And so that's quite, you, you got to be able to understand the background before you actually do a review and critique. So I appreciate Ken pointing that out, Russ, for joining us and sharing. So everybody else, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, not just this channel, but the Burian Dialogues as well. And uh, until next time, God bless. Thank you.